something new today. I got this thing in my hand, so bear with me. I don't know what's going to happen with this, with this clicker. I know I said it before, not much of a slide person, but there were some references that I did want us to, to see here this morning. So uh, I'll go ahead and start reading. Uh, I'll actually go back to verse 6 and start from verse 6 and read through 12 of Acts 20. So verse 6 says, But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them in Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus sitting at a window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms and said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Let's pray. Father, we just pray over your written word this morning that it stirs in our hearts and that it abides in us as we leave here this morning. And we pray that your truth be proclaimed and your spirit guides in that truth and reveals that truth to us, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the theme of this passage here is that sermons don't always go the way that we plan. So goal is to preach life in in that the Holy Spirit uses us when we preach to to bring life, but not death here as we see in this passage. Um, We're going to get a little bit deeper into this. So we see this like a five-hour sermon, and we'll talk a little bit more on why... um, I see why we determine here that it's around a five-hour sermon. Um, so first question is, when was this church here in Troas planted? So we have in Troas here, in, in, so when was this church planted? So remember the second missionary journey when, when Paul was going through uh, Galatia region, and he wasn't able to go into Asia Minor, he wasn't able to go into Bithynia, so he slipped through that little narrow corridor. This is the third journey here, but... Um, you can still see where he went through the uh, Galatian region and went to Troas. And that was the first time he met up with Dr. Luke. We see the, uh, the first person plural pronoun there uh, back in Acts 16 where, um, where they met up. And so likely Luke may have planted that church. God may have used Luke to plant that church in Troas, um, or it may have just been planted there by Paul at that trip when he first went to Troas. Um, also, remember here in the last chapter of Acts where Paul spent three years in Ephesus, and then after that three-year uh, stint there in Ephesus, he went on to Troas. Uh, remember in 2 Corinthians 212, where he was like, I went to Troas to preach the gospel. There was an opening for me in the Lord, but he was like, I, I was just not at rest with my soul because his brother Titus wasn't there. 
So they were planning to meet him and Titus there. And so Titus wasn't there, so he moved on to Macedonia to find his brother Titus, where he was bringing news from the Corinthian church from that first letter that was written to the Corinthians just to hear uh, the news, um, how they responded to that letter. Um, so remember, again, he needed to find Titus, so, so that trip, he was at Troas, he went across into Macedonia, and then he hit up his old stomping grounds there in Macedonia, he went through Philippi, Thessalonica, also, we don't see up there from that journey on this map at least, but in Romans chapter 15, verse 16, we hear about when Paul went to Illyricum, the, the spread of the gospel in Illyricum, which is just like northwest of Macedonia there. Um, then he went down into Corinth, spent three months in Corinth, and heard about the plot from the Jews to, to likely to kill him, and so at the dock of Sancria, he probably heard the, the, the Jews speaking of this, and the Holy Spirit uh, guided him to go back through Macedonia and to Philippi and then over into Troas, where we find Paul now. So at the end of verse 6 there, it says that he stayed for seven days in Troas. So he's there seven days. Remember before when he went through is he was just wasn't at ease because he wanted to find Titus, and so he went on into Macedonia. So now he's here, and he's like, I'm going to stay seven days and, and preach the gospel here to those in Troas. All right, we see here. So on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So we see here, um, what we're seeing here is, is the Apostle Paul in the, in the early church meeting for worship on the first day, Sunday. This is the first instance that we, we see this here uh, in the book of Acts in Scripture. And you see the, the breaking of bread happening here, the agape meal, so the love meal that they would share together, which also would include the, the Lord's Supper that they would take together with that agape meal. Um, we also see this meeting Again, on Sunday, reflected there in, in 1 Corinthians 16, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as we may prosper so that there will be, there will be uh, no collection when I come. So they won't need to take the collection when I come. It will already be collected. And that's talking about that collection for the, the Jews in Jerusalem. Remember, they were under the famine and the poor Jews in Jerusalem. So they would take that collection to, to help support the, the brothers there in Jerusalem. So, so this meaning of worship was, was established here by the early church and is, is ultimately why we meet on Sunday to worship collectively together. We see this too in, John speaks to this in, in Revelation. It says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. So Lord's Day being the first day of the week, a clearly Sunday. All the church fathers, all the, 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 the early documents of the church fathers indicate the Lord's Day being on Sunday as a collective understanding. Um, also see here, just like an extra biblical reference, again, how that, that the uh, early church fathers writing, the, the Didache is actually, um, most believe it was written by an apostle. It's not scripture, right? but it's just an extra biblical uh, reference here to 
the Lord's Day. Most believe it was written right around 60 A.D. Some varying differences there, but most believe right around 60 A.D., which would put us right here, right here in, in right around this time here that we're reading about Paul here in Acts. And, and so it says this about the Lord's Day. It says, and on the Lord's Day, gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanks. Um, that also goes, essentially it's a church manual. It's almost like a church doctrine manual that Didache. And um, it also goes on there in that reference there to say to confess your sins to one another so that you're, 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 you're pure before uh, God when you come into worship. So there's that also that a lot of merit to that in, in confessing your sins to one another so that you can carry each other's burdens and, and uplift each other. Um, so two things here. So the, the two things here of, of why or, or what caused this change to, for worship to be on Sunday. So two reasons. The very first one is most important, Christ's resurrection. So Christ's resurrection, he arose on the first day of the week. Uh, he met with his disciples on the first day of the week. That Sunday, he met with Mary. He met with the women. He met with Peter. He met with the disciples on the, on the road to Emmaus. He uh, met with the, the ten disciples, minus Judas, who was dead by this time, and minus Thomas, who, who wasn't there in that instant. Um, so the disciples here, they began to identify meeting with the Lord on the first day of the week, right there. So they, they, they begin to identify that. And um, also, too, I don't, there's no scripture reference, so I don't know, but it's not, nothing in scripture to indicate that, that Jesus met, the risen Lord met the disciples anytime between that first Sunday until the following Sunday. So, on the following Sunday, he met with all the disciples, including Thomas was there as well. So again, this quickly was adapted as this day of worship because it was being identified with meeting with the Lord. Uh, secondly, a new creation. So, and those that are just love to study the book of Genesis, and this link here is awesome. Okay, so the first day signifying a beginning of a new creation, right? So day one of the old creation, God created what? Light. Right? Let there be light on that first day. So one week later, so essentially the eighth day, which would now be the first day of a new week, would signify the beginning of a new creation. So all the creation work was done, and then it just ushered in that new creation on the eighth day, first day of the, the new week. And, and I believe the early church here began to recognize and the, that, that Sunday as a celebration of this new creation. And look here what Paul, Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. So I think Paul began to link these two ideas together, the old creation and the new creation there. And he says, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. Referencing Genesis 1-3 there. Let there be light. Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so we see here this, this 
linking Paul, Paul here linking these together of the old creation and new creation. And then he later on says in 2 Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is a new creation, or if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And the church here is, is, is now identifying with being a part of that new creation, that new creation in Christ, and, and not so much the old. So we find that rest in that new creation and is solidified, that, that rest is solidified in the atoning work of Christ on the cross. So again, the new creation is, is identified as a, a spiritual work, a spiritual work of creation on day one, as, as Paul explained there in, in 2 Corinthians 4.6. What we have in the early church here is, is a mix between these Gentile believers, a mix between Jewish believers. And so the Jewish believers likely still met on, we see this actually in, in, with Paul and with uh, the apostles, that they still met on Saturday for their regular um, meeting on the Sabbath Saturday in the synagogues. And then they would worship on Sunday. They'd meet with the rest of the believers on Sunday, with the Gentiles and the, the non-proselytes. And this went on, I'm sure exactly how long, but I'm sure it's very similar to, to Paul when he'd go into the synagogues and, and he would preach until he was pushed out. So first thing we see here in, in verse 7 is that they met on Sunday to break bread, to, to fellowship, to, to worship, Secondly, where they met, they were meeting in, in a home, a three-story home. They weren't meeting in a, in a fancy building with stained glass windows, nothing like that. And, and it's a great example that you can worship God anywhere. It's not in the confines of, of a building, uh, anywhere. It could be in a home. It could be sitting at a restaurant. It could be in a pole barn in the middle of the United States. Nothing? Can I get a witness here? Come on. All right. Thirdly, they're meeting in the evening. So they're meeting in the evening here They were reading in this, in this passage, and it says here, Paul prolonged his speech until midnight there in verse 7. So wasn't preaching from Sunday morning till midnight. Sure, Paul had a lot to say, and sure he could have, but the people listening, there would be a lot more Eutychuses if that was the case. Uh, and so the early church, so the Jewish believers, the Gentile believers, they all worked on Sunday. It was a work day. So it, in, the, in the Roman world, there was no Sabbath. There wasn't a a a day of rest. It was seven days a week. The ancient philosopher Seneca spoke of this, he, and he would be, he spoke of this degrading the, the uh, Christians and degrading the, the Jews for wasting time. He said they're wasting time not working on the Sabbath. They needed to be working all the time. And, and, and so we also see this too in uh, this indication here of 
the early Christians meeting on Sunday. Uh, the Roman governor of Bithynia, which is just north of Troas. And so that Roman governor, uh, his name was Pliny the Younger. He wrote a letter to the emperor of Rome at that time, who was Trajan, and wrote this letter, and he was complaining about Christians. And he was complaining and saying, and in that letter he wrote that they would meet together Sunday morning before dawn, and then they would break apart to go to work, and then they would come back together in the evening to, to continue to fellowship, which that's awesome and uplifting to me to, to think back on in, in how devoted the early church was with fellowship together with, with one another. So we see here Sunday evening. So Sunday was still a work day. So the concept here of a Sabbath uh, it's just not there. It's not there when it comes to right here in Acts. This is the concept isn't there. So now I know there's a there is a lot of differing opinions on the Sabbath, and and these are all very wonderful issues to to discuss. It gets really gets us into the scripture discussing. The, all the, the issues on the Sabbath. But what we see here in Acts is that, that Sunday was not a Sabbath because they worked. They were working. And okay, we, we must at least observe here what's going on in the early church and what's going on here in this passage in Acts 20. And um, Justo Gonzalez, he's a... Uh, New Testament history writer, uh, he, he wrote a book uh, called The History of Sunday in the New Testament. And he said this, he said, The notion that Sunday was taking place of the, uh, was taking place of the Sabbath is notably absent from early Christian literature. For the first three centuries of the church, there was no expectations that on the Lord's day one is to rest from one's labors. We see uh, the first mentioning of Sunday rest was what Gonzalez says, the third century. So we see that Sunday rest being officially issued by Constantine in 321 A.D., which led to a more of a practice of Sabbath keeping on Sunday. Now, Constantine did some gnarly stuff, all right, which would make... A lot of people uh, question the validity of his conversion, but nevertheless, we do know that God uses even the acts of unbelievers to bring glory to himself. Example, the crucifixion. So, likely this, this, this Sabbath-keeping on Sunday was before Constantine, before that, that, that decree was issued by him, and it was likely it was being developed already prior to that. And, and then it developed. It started developing through the Middle Ages. The Puritans then established more of this rigorous form of Sabbatarianism on Sunday, which we see in a, in a lot of our early creeds. Um, for the early church, Sabbath was not a matter of physical, but it was a matter of spiritual rest, and that spiritual rest that you can only find in Christ. That was, that was the, in, the, the matter here. And, then, and remember what Jesus said, he says, come to me, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. He says, I will give you rest. 
will give you rest. That's that spiritual rest. Rest for your soul. That soul rest. When you read the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, the writer there links the Sabbath day rest of creation week, not with a physical rest. It's not with a physical rest in the church, which I'll be the first to admit that I'm so thankful for that blessing. So thankful for that blessing that we can come together in rest on Sunday. Rest in his word and worship him and just be solely focused on him. But here in Hebrews 4, it talks about that spiritual rest that that every believer in Christ enjoys every single day and will enjoy throughout all of eternity. That rest that, that Dan read this morning, that he makes us lie down in green pastures, that, that just that ultimate rest that can only be found in Christ. So the physical Sabbath here was, was in Scripture, he was talking about in the New Testament is a type, a type of, of, of spiritual rest that is fulfilled only in Christ. That's why in Colossians 2, Paul says that the Sabbath was a shadow, a shadow of good things to come fulfilled in Jesus. So there's a shadow of things to come and that rest we find in him. So again, I don't want us to, to, to misunderstand what I'm saying here. I am I'm so thankful that God has given us uh, this ability to come together on Sundays and rest and just, just focus solely on him on this day. But the main uh, emphasis here in the New Testament on Sunday was not a physical rest, but a spiritual rest, a spiritual rest in Christ. Because he, here's the thing, too. Like if, if one were to just rest all day, right, but never glory in the majesty of Christ, then we're not living up to the New Testament principle, falling short of that New Testament principle of rest in Christ. All right, so... Here in this, this passage, that being that new creation, that new creation in Christ, so that, that Christ is the church here, this early church is identified with that new creation. And more than the old creation in, in the beginning, but this new creation that we find in Christ through his atonement on the cross. Um, in his resurrection, in that resurrection, we are... We are raised up. We are raised up with him and, and seated with him in, in heavenly places. And so we, that's where we find that, that rest. And again, there's different opinions on, on the Sabbath issue. And I think we are all to take heed of Paul's exhortation that he, that he gives us in Romans 14 where he says, One esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. He says in Colossians 2.16, let no one, no one pass judgment on food, drink, festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. So not to pass judgment on, on those who, who take a Sabbath on certain days or, or, or look to, to eat different foods and things like that to, to not pass judgment, but, um, but to encourage them in that. So... The biggest thing, though, I, I think we need to point out with Sunday is 
is the words of the, the author in Hebrews, to, to not neglect, to not neglect the gathering of the saints, which is the habit of some, it says. And so that would be the big focus on Sunday is to not neglect the gathering. It's the day in which we all come together and, and able to uplift each other and, and, and build each other up and just worship collectively. So the main point here is what we see in Acts is different, and, and we need to distinguish what we see in Acts and the development throughout church history when it comes to um, the Sabbath and it changing to Sunday. So again, verse 7 on that first day of the week, we were gathered together and to break bread. Paul talked with them, intending to part on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer, and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, bent over him, and taking him up in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. When Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten and conversed with them a long while until daybreak, he and so departed. Here in this passage, we certainly see the, the corporate worship of the early church. Uh, the prime focus here was administering the word of God, uh, this five-hour sermon uh, until midnight and then after breaking bread. And the reason why I say this five-hour sermon is, remember, they worked. They worked. Met together in the morning, broke off, and went to work, and then came back together. So it was likely around 7 p.m. We can kind of uh, guesstimate very close to that time period. Uh, and then this breaking of the bread typically happened during supper time, but you see here Paul prolonged his, his speech, and that didn't occur till midnight. So again, Paul prolongs his speech until midnight, and, and, and this probably was not just a straight lecture of five hours. Uh, there's probably some breaks in it, some discourse, some interaction of, of just digging in to the Old Testament scriptures and asking questions. Um, and in verse 9 here, so now we see young Eutychus. This young man named Eutychus. Eutychus, the, the name means fortunate, which makes a lot of sense. And young man, that word young man in the Greek indicates that he was somewhere between the ages of 7 and 14. So he was, he was relatively young. Um, so he's in this upper room. It was probably really crowded uh, with all the people coming together to, to collectively worship. And he, like most young teenage kids, would kind of slip through and just find this seat here on this windowsill, this open windowsill. Remember, there, there was no, like, windows that opened up and down. It was just an open square window frame. And so he finds that spot, and he's listening to the Apostle Paul. It's around the fifth hour. The lamps there were, were burning because it was evening, so they didn't have electricity. So they had these lamps in there and so they could see. It was likely really warm in there from all the people, the lamps burning, oxygen being sucked out of the room from the lamps. So it's likely, too, he worked all day. 
I know that seems crazy for you guys, young teenagers to think about that, but he, he was probably one of the ones that broke off and then came back, and he could have been working all day. So it's understandable that he's weary. It's, it's understandable um, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Uh, so Eutychus here, he sank into this deep sleep. He, he fell out of this third-story window, and... I'm going to see at the end here of verse 9. He fell down from the third story window and was taken up dead. So he's taken up dead. So remember, who was it that wrote the book of Acts? Who was it that penned the book of Acts? Who was the feathery calligraphy pen that the Holy Spirit used to write the book of Acts? Dr. Luke, all right, the physician. Dr. Luke, he knows what dead is. If anybody, if any of the apostles knew what dead was, it was Luke. So he knew what dead was, and, and, and what we see now is this just incredible resurrection in verse 10. So Paul went down, he bent over him, and taking him up in his arms and said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. This is where some skeptics would say that he wasn't actually dead. Paul picked him up, and he just confirmed he wasn't dead. Um, Luke is very clear that he was dead. And that Greek word there for dead, you, you know what that Greek word for dead means? It means dead. There's no other interpretation. It's dead. So when Paul comes down, we see this great display of God's grace upon this young Eutychus. And as we read this, this, this passage here, it should sound a little bit familiar. So Old Testament, Elijah, Old Testament, Elisha, God used both of them to resurrect children from the dead. Remember Elijah, he, he stretched himself over the child three times and the child came back to life. Elisha stretched himself over the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands, and then the warmth came back into the child's body and he was alive. So I think Paul here, he was doing something similar to that. And I think Luke here, he, he's painting this picture and, he, and, he, and he's pointing out this because there are several cities that are undermining Paul's apostolic authority. Uh, Corinth being one of them, that second book of, to the Corinthians was, was exactly for this, to, to, for his defense of his apostleship. Um, so this, this miracle here, was to show, first and foremost, the power of God, the omnipotence of God, the, the, the glory of God, first and foremost. And secondly, Paul's apostolic authority. So it's just showing that he's on the same level as Elijah and, and Elisha and, and, and Peter. Remember back in Acts 9 when, when Peter rose Tabitha from the dead, the Lord using Peter to, to do that. So I think what was... Luke was trying to really indicate here uh, was the legitimacy of, of Paul's apostleship. So miracles, miracles and signs just flowed through Paul, even this extremely, extremely rare miracle of resurrection. Only five times, only five times in the New Testament do we see this miracle of resurrection, three of them being performed by Christ, one Peter, one Paul, and then resurrection of Christ himself. So it's very, very 
very unusual, very, very rare, but surely here shows that, that God's hand was upon the Apostle Paul. So, so it seems here that there may have been like some apologetic reasons for, for Luke to be writing this, to, to defend the power of God and to defend Paul's apostolic authority. So here's the application we have for this, uh, this passage and, and how you can essentially avoid the embarrassment of being resuscitated after a church service. So first and foremost, so there's, I'm going to give you five words and, and each starting with the letter S so it'll be a little bit easy to remember. The first one is, is such a simple concept, but sleep. Sleep. Sleep before service, not during um, don't stay up all night playing video games. Get some sleep. Secondly is, is, is single-mindedness. To come ready to worship single-minded and focused on all that we are doing collectively. To focus single-minded on everything we are doing collectively in worship. So focused on the words, the words of music, of, of the worship, and not just simply singing, but taking those words and, and hearing them and praising God with all your breath. So being single-minded in, in worship. When we pray, don't just, don't just simply hear the words, but, but pray along with those who are praying. Be single-minded in, in echoing the words that are being praised. So rather than just being an audience to prayer, to being an audience to corporate prayer, pray alongside. Be engaged in that prayer. When we listen to the word of God, and just heed every single word, every word, so that, so that it may search you, so that the word may search you and, and convict your heart and encourage you and bless you. Be single-minded in, in receiving that word of God. And yes, I know our minds are sometimes fickle. They sometimes stray. It, but man, try to, to, to stay focused on being that single-minded as to why we come to gather together on Sunday mornings. And that's to, to, to hear his word and to, to be transformed by his word. Thirdly goes along with this, this sacred sacred man when we are when we are under the ministry of the word realize what we are being taught this is this is the sacred the sacred word of god this is the holy scriptures given to us by the the infinite god sacred words each and every word god breathed for our blessing, it's for our benefit, it's for our edification, it's for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So to understand that, that we have come to hear the, the sacred gift of God and what he has given us, his holy scriptures, Just knowing that concept and letting that concept of Scripture just encourage you, encourage you to just cling to every single word, whether, it, whether it's in corporate worship or whether it's in family discipleship or just 
alone time in the scriptures with God. Not simply to just, it's not just the words of men. It's not simply just listening to the words of men. And I, I, I know that my babbling is in there as well. Right? But it's the sacred, precious word of God that, that we try to convey to the best of our ability. So take hold uh, the Holy Scriptures with, with that respect because that is what we're here. We're here to, to learn so that we can better learn to serve and better learn to worship our Creator. So always be reminded of that when we come together. We, we come together under the, the authority of no person, but under the authority and primacy of God's holy word. Fourthly, study. Man, study. And how does one fall in love with God's word? By studying his word. By studying it. The more you study it, the greater the yearning is for his words. Like a, like a deer pants for water. The more you study, the more, the more you want to know that. You yearn to know more and more of the depths of his loving kindness, the depths of his grace, the, the depths of his mercy, the depths of his wrath, the depths of his sovereignty. The reality is the, the exp- exploration of, of the depths of Scripture, if you had a million lifetimes, you won't even come close. But, but yet he chose to make himself known. He chose to make himself known. Sent his son, his one and only son, to die on the cross, to make his love known. Like that, that was a love that is just uncomprehendable. Think about the perfect love. Our love is it's, it's finite. It's, it's so far from perfect. Think about how difficult that would be to give up your own son in the confines of imperfect love. You know, we love our, our, our children, but it's still imperfect love. It'll never be perfect. But the perfect God with perfect love sent his son, sacrificed him, sacrificed him for the sins of all who believe. He's buried, rose again. Can't even fathom that love. But he makes himself known through that. Through that sacrifice, through that atoning work, he makes himself known to all those who believe. The Holy Spirit takes that atoning work and imputes it into those who are his and makes himself known. If that is you, explore the scriptures. Yearn to know him more and more so we can better serve him more and more. 
Lastly here, soul sleep. A good contemporary view of soul sleep is what we see in most professing Christians today. Soul sleep. Worse than falling asleep physically, and if you come to church and you are asleep spiritually, it's way worse. It's one thing to, to be able to stay awake, and it's a complete other thing to be awake with your physical eyes shut. With the eyes of your heart and the eyes of your soul are just closed. Maybe listening, but it's not penetrating. It's like the hard roadside soil of the parable. The seeds of the word fall down, but they just don't penetrate. The birds come and they just scoop it away. It's honestly my greatest fear. I can handle somebody falling asleep physically, but man, if someone is asleep spiritually, that's an entirely different matter. It's a fearful thing to to be awake in the body, but just sound asleep in the spirit. I think it's what Jonathan Edwards meant when he said of those who are just dangling by that slender thread over the pits of hell. They're hearers of the word, but they're not doers of the word. They do not respond to the word. They hear it, but they don't respond to it. Their lives look exactly the same year after year after year. Sleeping. This is why Paul, when he wrote to the church of Ephesus in chapter 5, he said this, he said, Awake, sleeper, arise, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Awake. Don't just come to church or Bible study in, in a trance, but come to be transformed. Transformed by the renewal of your mind. That only comes from Scripture. Pray to God. When you, before you come to church, if you're, just pray to God. Like, God, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be going to church here in the next hour. Lord, just reveal the truth of your word. Change my heart. Transform me. May I hear the worship, hear the words of prayer that I may cling to every God-breathed word from your scripture to be transformed. We need, we need, we need the Holy Spirit in our lives to help us, to energize us, to teach us, to transform us. Remember again, Paul said in 2 Corinthians, the, the old has come, the new is gone. New creation in Christ.
new things have not yet come. Your life still consists of the old things. Pray to God that He changes your heart, takes your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh so that God may help us to to be not like Eutychus physically. We don't know his spiritual state, but to not be asleep physically, to not be asleep spiritually, but to profit under the ministry of the word so that we may be able to glorify him more and more in every step we take. Let's pray. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's just asleep spiritually, their spiritual eyes are closed, Father, I pray your spirit opens their eyes, opens their eyes to the truth of your son, Jesus the truth of his atoning work on the cross. That he died for the sins of the world. How you gave up your son in perfect love for the sins of those not deserving. Father, I pray that you change hearts today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.